Kia ora, aotearoa, and welcome to Generally Famous Stuff Podcast. I'm Simon Bridges, and every week I talk to generally famous but always interesting guests about life, love, and what makes them tick. Today's guests are multi-billionaires, entrepreneurs, marketing geniuses, famous for founding and then selling 42 Below Vodka for a lot of money. But today, high country farmers of their very own Lake Hauea Station, Jeff and Justine Ross. Great to have you on. Kia ora, Simon. You sound like one of our advertisements. <laughs> um, well, it's, I suppose it's meant to sound like that at the start. Hopefully it'll get more natural, but we want to... Um, you know, we want to invite people in, and you guys are marketing people, so you understand all of this better than I do. Um, I, I wanted to start, I thought it was interesting. You are, because I don't know how many of these are left, you are childhood sweethearts from, have I got it right, Papakura High? Yes, you have got it right, yeah. 16 and 17. S- sixth form and fifth form. <laughs> and um, the state, you're not sort of sixth form and fifth form now. Um, and it's reassuring in an age of, I was just saying, you know, Hugh and Mrs. Jackman were married 27 years. I know. They've and they lose my faith in everything. They've split up. What's your, if, is there a, um, I don't want to be cheesy, but I mean, are there secrets? Have, there, have you guys worked out some things that have, that have kept you together for what I would, let me do the maths here, I'm just picking... Well, it's over 27 years. It's, it's Yeah, it's, it is over 27 years, yeah. I think we've just Quite kept ourselves really busy, Simon. Too, right. too, too busy to get distracted and <laughs> I think there's find someone I else. I think there's something in there. There's, 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 yeah, you can become annoyed with someone if you... Um, idle hands make the devil's work or something. I think that's right. Um, you are. Don't worry, the psychoanalysis of you both is going to stop very soon. But um, I read your fantastic... Um, Book, Justine, meet you at the main divider. Family story of life on Lake Hawaii Station, and it struck me you are very, you know, I just come. You have very different personalities. Is that fair? Oh, completely. And maybe it's that old opposites attract, right? Thirty years later, I think uh, we're a great team. I mean, I think I'm literally taking this out of your book. Jeff, you're a quiet sort. Um, I just don't get the sense that that's you, Justine. <laughs> I could be. I could. Am I right? Oh, you're so right. Yeah. And you said in your book, um, you talked about this is quote my wild energy. That's you, Justine, and Jeff's capacity for listening and learning. So I've got you as a peacemaker, and possibly I'm not sure that that's you, Justine. Mm, mm, mm. That I, would you well, again? Let's ask Jeff. <laughs> what do you reckon, Jeff? <laughs> Well, he's going to be a peacemaker and say, oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah. That's fair, Simon. Yeah. And you did a BCom in actually in agriculture at Lincoln. So that's, have I got that right, Jeff? Mm -hmm. So that's, you've got a pedigree for what you're doing now. And Justin, you did speech and language therapy. And I think you said somewhere, you kind of, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Do you regret doing that? What would you have done if you were starting out again? Mm, That's such a... Good question. Um, possibly politics, Simon. Right. right. Well, we've yeah. You'd, I think you'd regret it. I'm absolutely thrilled now looking back. I've made some significant career U-turns. I went from speech language therapy into advertising for yeah. um, quite a while and then went to journalism school in London, came home and researched and wrote documentaries and now 
look what I'm doing. So um, I absolutely don't regret any of those decisions. I think it's um, really healthy to um, keep learning and, and make calls if things aren't working for you. And in terms of um, a social services background, I'm just forever grateful for it. I think it's made me a better human. I think it's made me a better mother. Um, I think it's made me, um, yeah, just a better uh, community member um, because I have that um, deep-seated um, care for people that comes with four years of tertiary training in, yep. um, in social services. And actually what I take from what you're saying, you know, politics, and we, we talked a bit about that off air, is, you know, you, you, you two, uh, passion is a grossly overused word, but you're passionate environmentalists. I think you say environmental activists. What I would say to you is actually um, what I've learned, obviously, now out of politics is you can make massive difference outside of politics. You know, there is this tendency that everything's about the political world, but actually in business and, and other things, you can you can make profound changes. Um, I don't know if there's a question in that, but I mean, your business lives, would you kind of say, you feel like you're making a positive? I mean, were you talking your book about B Corps and social impact and these things? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I certainly hope you're right. I think going back to 42 Below, I think you know, that was a time where there weren't actually a heap of startups in New Zealand, you know, and we kind of naively started a vodka company, which was at the time, you know, a crazy idea. But there are there are now hundreds of crazy ideas, and that's actually a really positive thing. So hopefully mm. we and others were, you know, influential in some way in, in building that startup culture in New Zealand. Yeah, and we took um, 42 Below to the NZX, which was the first time that a business had gone to the capital markets just to, for purely for on the basis of brand and yes. for growth capital. And that was, you know, considered... Um, Crazy cr- at the time. We've definitely um, challenged a few norms and um, and we haven't done that from the political arena, so I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, and, and look, I, I want to talk a bit about 42 Below because I think there is that trailblazer aspect to it, which you've, you've mentioned. You're at the likes of um, DDB, Saatchi's, how do you look back on those times? Were they wild times? Do they, are all the cliches there or? Yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And to add to that, though, we're lucky to work with some really smart people, really talented people. So it was straight after university and it's a great, those first kind of five, ten years straight out of the kind of the gate from university are really, really important, I think, to informing the rest of your career. And we were both lucky to work with some super smart people. And I suppose at a level, once sort of marketers and advertisers always, I mean, you're bringing that to farming in New Zealand because I think what you would say is um, there hasn't been enough of it in farming and there hasn't been enough of it that's been done remotely well. Yes and yes, again. Yeah, absolutely. 42 below, so you sold out in the end to Bacardi and I appreciate you didn't make all of this, but, you know, 138 million, it's not bad. You know, this is a good um, day or a few years at the office. Um, I know, like, all startups that go on to success, look, it would have been, and I think you talk about, it started in your garage, it's lots of work, and it meant you couldn't buy your own home and these sort of things. Um, but I think, Jeff, there was a sense from what I've read of you and heard of you that you, you do nevertheless feel, in quotes, lucky and that it was sort of right time, you were on trend, and, you know, you're able to make a shed load. Is that fair or...? Yeah, look, there are a whole lot of things, a whole lot of tailwinds at that time that were working in our favour. One was, but I guess they were tailwinds, but we 
we saw them coming. You know, like one was the renaissance of cocktails, the main ingredient being vodka. We saw that coming. One was another tailwind was the, this growing awareness of perception of New Zealand worldwide as this pure place. And then some other key factors were, were people that I met, you know, key guys in the business like Grant and Steve and, and Nashi we talked about. Um, Dion Nash, yep. Yep. So we... Look, we had a great team, a good idea, great time, and, yeah, it, it, they all came together. And we saw it coming because, we, were, as you've just pointed out, we were drinking quite a lot of it at the time. <laughs> it was the 1990s in advertising. Everyone was drinking everything. Well, have you got a favourite cocktail? Oh. Uh, uh, still a classic martini with a twist. Well-made martini is, is still a great drink. Fantastic. I was a Manuka honey uh, 42 Below fan. Wonderful. Can not remember the old Fijoa flavour? That was yeah. fantastic. That was great. That yeah. was one flavour we kind of luckily nailed right off the bat. Yeah, no, I love that. That was fantastic. Someone said somewhere, I've got no idea where I got this from, but some quote, the brand changed the way New Zealand and the investment community viewed growth brands and brought about a new style of marketing to the world. Yeah, Mark Weldon, who was head of the NZX at the time, said that, I believe. Right. Yeah. Discuss what was it about what you were doing that really changed that business and marketing thing in New Zealand? Um, I think boldness of communication ideas. I mean, the one thing that we both got frustrated with in advertising is we'd we'd work with creative people to come up with these fantastic ideas, take them to the client, pitch them to the client, and they'd go, oh, no, it's too risky. And so rather than us getting kind of bitter and frustrated with that, we thought, well, actually, what if we really do believe that, you know, bold, you know, strong ideas – can build brands, why don't we actually apply them to our own brands? And a, another great person who we worked with is a guy called Daryl Parsons. Mm-hmm. So we, we were creating MPEGs and Daryl and I would release them at night. We'd come back into the office in the morning and would kind of go on and see how many views that MPEG had and, you know, it would go a million, six million. Just to million. clarify what an MPEG is, it was just one of those little virals that was, this is before YouTube, so yeah. we would just flick out a wee viral that was made by... Um, uh, Daryl and um, they just became a contagion around the world. People absolutely loved them. They were very, very naughty. What were the? I can't remember. What was it? One with? was a story of New Zealand. Like it was a lot of kind of humour and pistachio. Oh, I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, one was a really um, powerful one. Was the, when the Lions were touring here. We kind of we we took the piss out of England, which is easy to do, <laughs> and um, and we sent that round and. Like within weeks, the order book from the UK just went like this. Mm. Yeah, amazing. It and, was and, you were in, and you were in the Ritz and you know, yeah. fancy swanky bars and in New York. Was that a hard journey, or did it kind of? Yeah, it was. It was hard. I mean, it's, you say the Ritz, and one of the greatest days we've ever had is is being welcomed into the Ritz. Um, Jesse and I and, and the wee boys, they literally rolled out the red red carpet for us. But Lined up, yeah. white gloves on and shook our hands. And Amazing. I think that was completely surreal and, and very special. But, but you know, there was, was shitloads of work and late nights and lots of risks and lots of moments where we thought, you know, oh, my God, is this actually, are we going to get there? And our gorgeous team, we would just literally give them a bottle, a business card and a story and say, that's your market. Go when we sold to Bacardi, um, Forty Two Below was the fastest growing super premium vodka in um, the United Kingdom. Waitrose had changed the shelves so they could fit us on because the bottle wouldn't fit in the shelves. So. And I think one other thing that we did, um, just back to Mark Weldon's comment, is that we um, were always prepared to kiss the shadows. And so if we got told off or something didn't go well, we'd just come out, and this was, you know, often driven by Daryl, um, we'd just come out and say, yep, 
we sucked. Uh, own, own up to it. Own up yeah. to Real it. Quick. We got it wrong. Yeah. And yeah. Which I suppose is a bit harder to do if you're a, you know, a Coca-Cola or something, which I Very. think, you know, one of you might have said, of, again, that uh, the issue with them is, you know, they haven't in 40 years come up with their own brands. They're just acquiring them. I think if this is true, the last brand that actually Coke grew from a startup was Sprite back in the... 70s or something. So Coke now own hundreds and hundreds of brands worldwide, you know, from iced teas to juices and all things like that, energy drinks. But they're all brands that entrepreneurs have started and, and they've ended up buying. And that's it's typically true that large corporates are not good at building new brands. And I'm not suggesting that um, the, 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 the product wasn't any good. It was great. I mean, the, the Fajal one is one I can just remember tasting right now. It's fantastic. A product. I'm not saying that because you get anything out of it anymore, but how much is product and how much is brand? Look, you cannot build a world-class brand um, in, in any sector if the product's crap. Yeah, 100%. There's a, there's a bunch of other businesses you've been involved in, Trilogy, The Skin and the Beauty and all of, of, of that stuff. I think you, you've been involved in Moa Brewing. We know that one. You got any general kind of advice? When when do you get involved and when do you not get involved? When do you get out? Got any sort of, I don't know, platitudes for us on any of that? I wish I had one simple one um, <laughs> that, that I could follow myself. But it's – look, I – I think if you have um, a really strong understanding of a category and where it's going, you know, and, and you know that category really well and you research it and because you love it and you're interested in it, then then you should be pretty well informed to kind of make a view of when to get in and, and when to get out. And Simon, passion's such a big part of it. I yeah. know it's a cliche, but if you're not feeling it anymore, I yeah. mean, I say that to anyone in any form of employment, if you're not feeling the purpose, the direction of your company or your a growing brand, then, yeah, you can't, you can't get there because uh, you need that rocket fuel, that absolute... And that's um, not just just you won't have bad days or hard times. And uh, that's a very good segue, I think, into farming. Um, one of the things I took from your book, Justine, is that this isn't, wasn't, still isn't, I'm sure, some sort of romantic life of rural idol and bliss. It was bloody, and it still is bloody hard work. Uh, look, it is. And... You're right again. Like we, the whole thing grew on us. To be fair, you know, we went went down there. We thought, hey, you know, we love this region. We love the recreational opportunity. We we love the environmental opportunity, but we totally underestimated the scale of what's required, um, and and the work involved. And we've both got a massive new appreciation for how tough farming is, and how hard you know farmers in New Zealand work. It, it's huge. You've to be a successful farmer. You know, you've got to have skills across, whether it be, you know, mechanical, vet, accounting, um, you know, stock work, dog work. And, and now we've turned up and we're saying you need to be marketers too. Yeah. <laughs> well, your mate Al Brown uh, it talks about, you know, you had a healthy dose of naivety, I think, and that's, you know, required. I, as I sit here, actually, the other thing I think of is, you know that series, we've talked a bit of TV before we came on, is a Shit's Creek. It's a bit yeah, like yeah. that. I mean, you guys went from Hearn Bay, Mansion, Macchiatos Burn. and cocktails to, to sort of being up at the crack of dawn and working all day on your six and a half thousand uh, hectares. Why'd you do that? 
Can I just add to that previous comment that we knew nothing about sheep and beef farming either? <laughs> <laughs> Jeff had come from. Um, this is literally. I mean, this could have been. This could be a um, reality TV show. Yeah. Yeah. Shit's Creek is a great show too. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Jeff had come from um, dairying and deer. And my parents, my father was from an orchard and my mother was from a dairy farm. So, I mean, I don't think I knew the difference between a, a strong wool and a, and a merino sheep. And I certainly didn't think that merino were much to look at. I would have much preferred some of those cute little fluffy ones that we see on Instagram. <laughs> but um, now I look at merino and I'm just moved. I'm emotionally affected by them. They um in the most difficult of conditions, produce the most magnificent of fibres, and um, they've got me hook, line, and sinker. Amazing. Amazing. Um, we haven't asked your question, no. answered your question really, have we? Like why? Oh, the why. Um, well, look, we've always had a sense of what's required for the environment, and there's before we went there, there was this growing conversation that, um, you know, from some quarters that, is, is farming bad for the environment? So kind of in our gut, we didn't kind of, you know, crystallise this, but we we kind of wanted to disprove that for some reason. We had this growing discourse in our family that I talk about that was creating tension where Jeff was um, part of the Pure Advantage um, lobby group yep. for the environment. Um, our son was um, had become vegan. He was um, a budding environmentalist, and I've been in various advocacy groups for the environment. So there was this growing sense that um, our life of what I consider now should be um, excess um, was not our not right for us. It didn't. It was an uncomfortable shoe, and we were. Um, we were unsatisfied with it. And so we just put another enormous challenge in front of us and in, in front of our whole family, in front of, you know, what were then um, younger sons and said, right, we're uprooting everything and we're off. Um, and They were up for it? It was definitely difficult. Um, Gabe had to change schools um, at 14, which is a pretty crappy age to have to leave your um, lifelong um, pals. pals. Mm. Um, so that was a really big ask for him. But he's certainly gone on to become quite the southern man now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Um, and Finn, um, look, they'd be nowhere else. They love it. In fact, they said to us the other day, best move we ever made. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, I mean, what you've said... Justine, I've got another quote from you. I'm, it goes like this. I'm not sure which is easier to have a life that tracks purposefully and makes sense or a life of comfort. We've not worked out how to have both. We just keep going. So, I mean, is there any comfort on your high country's farm? Um, yes, there absolutely. There are moments of um, moments of great joy Um Surprisingly for me, they come from um, things like bringing an animal back from the brink of um, death or uh, they come from just taking a walk up a hill and, and watching the sunset. They are, in fact, the simple things that you would think. Um, and, yeah, there are beautiful moments for sure. There's moments of solidarity with our team when we all sit around an open fire and, and moments when they look at us and I know that uh, they trust us. And um, there are moments when the sharers will come um, and 
seek me out if I'm not on the property at the moment that they've left and they'll come to find me to say goodbye and we'll talk about what the year's going to bring for them and their children and I know that I'm now part of a family of people who contribute on the station and that's moving and and gives me some comfort. What have you learned about yourselves? Is it as simple as um, you don't need all the fancy stuff to get by or God is in nature? I don't know. What have you, what have you learned? <laughs> Look deeply into nature and you will understand everything. Yeah. No, I, I, I understand a lot less, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's, that's reassuring to me then. That's how I feel most days. Yeah. Um, I think we've learned there's these crazy things called seasons and yeah. there's this thing called climate that no matter how well planned you are, it can have such a big influence. I had no idea um, of the attrition of biodiversity. I think I I thought I knew, but I know so much less than I... Um, and like what on that you see on your, your thousands of hectares? What, what, yeah. what shows that to you? So we have... Um, five critically endangered species and others that we talk about all the time. Um, Oleria frimbriata, which is a tree daisy that um, is critically or nationally endangered. Um, But the one I talk about in the book, and there's a kind of a naughty story around it, is the skink, um, which is the Western um, Grand Skink, which we have... About a 30 centimetre long lizard. Mm, Quite a big lizard. Yeah. Yeah. And we have the last wild population on planet Earth. In the world. We had no idea that we were... Um, about to become custodians of of these creatures, and they're very cool. And what would you say? How many would be left? So close. The last count is a really cool story. You should tell it, Jesse. But there's close to forty now. We think so. Right. A viable population is over over twenty. Right. Yeah. So but our, gosh, that's a bit of pressure, though. Oh, you can't yeah. have too many cats or possums or, no. or stoats running around the place. No. Yeah. So our son Finn led the charge on that. He's a climate scientist, and he. Um, is besotted with all things um, biodiversity and he um, took a skink expert. I mean, I didn't even know there was a skink expert when I was living my Herne Bay life, but, you know, off he goes um, out the back and they did the first survey. They came home from um, the back country and they had seen none. We knew they should be there, but there was none to be seen. And then the next day they went out to do another survey. They came back. There was, I think they found one one small group and a juvenile, which was exciting. Um, and so the, since then we've worked with um, various people, including um, Professor David Norden, who is our mentor and our on-farm advisor, and we've uh, started to um, manage and support that population. We'd have cacophony monitors around the station so that we can monitor the bird song and, and, and what birds are around. And it, I, one of the really cool things um, that I've discovered is the tech that can help us with our biodiversity. That's a really special part of of what we're doing. So, so many things we didn't know. And um, we walked into um, the acquisition of the property really profoundly ignorant, I'd say. (laughs) We just had this passion, this purpose to to see if um, farming could contribute uh, um, positively to the climate crisis, to try and demonstrate that. But the hows of that we had no clue of. Let's... um Let's talk about that. I've already said you're self-described environmental activists. You've put that into practice. 
Um, I, I have a sense, but I'm, I'm certainly no expert. Um, let's let's run through some of the things I think you would say, from what I can tell, are the, the big important things you're doing here. One of them is regenerative farming practices. Um, look, explain that to us. Okay. And I'll also explain, if I can, why it's really important. Yep. So I might start with that. So um, the term regenerative is now widely used around the world, not just in farming, but in fashion and in food and travel. Pretty much every sector is now using this term regenerative. And when Vogue magazine runs a headline which is regenerative agriculture that can save the world, it's something when farmers should probably listen to and be interested in. So that's why it's important because it can help us gain a premium and more demand and a unique selling point for for all our produce, all our food and fibre. Um, what is it? I reckon the best definition I've been given is diversity. So when I went to Lincoln, when I grew up on a farm, all our pastures were monoculture or maybe ryegrass and clover at best. You know, And that's what we were told for years and years and years and decades builds um, productivity for our animals. Um, but h- however, in Mother Nature, Mother Nature over millions of years has used diversity to create productivity. So nowhere in Mother Nature does a monoculture naturally exist. They have diversity for all sorts of reasons. There's more nutrient exchange in the soil, more resilience, more water retention, more soil health, all those types of things. So we use a lot of diversity. We're getting better soil health. We're much less fertilizer costs and we're getting um, much less tractor time because we're direct drilling. You don't need to, there's no tillage. You're not out there with a plough all hours of the day. And uh, we're getting as good as, if not better, um, growth rates in our animals and wool rate uh, and wool gains as well. So I'm sitting there as a townie and I say, oh, that sounds fantastic. Give, give me the case against. I mean, why then is this, does this, my sense, I've, I could be yep. wrong, but have some controversy around it in the farming community and they say, no way, Jeff. You're talking bollocks. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Two years ago, if you go into a rural pub in New Zealand and mention the word regen, you know, you'd almost start a fight. Um, <laughs> and it would be viewed as this hippie crock of shit, you know. Um, and, and we're not the only ones, of course. There's been people regenerative farming well before we we gave it a crack. Some really good regen farmers doing amazing things who have been lucky, we've been lucky enough to learn a lot from. The popular view is... And, you know, if you've been farming ryegrass and clover for five decades, which most of New Zealand has, the popular view is that 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 is the best system. That's what I got told at Lincoln, right? So for for someone to change away from that, it's quite a big change because it's so ingrained in New Zealand farming. Um, So the, the naysayers will say it costs you more and you produce less. And now, in our case at least, in every farm, admittedly, every farm is different, it actually costs us less and we produce more. And get paid a premium for it. So yeah. that's so, the key point, I think. Yeah. Which is very compelling. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that.
You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> You've done a lot of ecological restoration, native planting, fencing, new tracks, sheds, yards. Um, I want to ask you about carbon farming. Uh, This is a big deal for you. Um, Explain what that means at the farm level. Um, And, and, yeah, I mean, I know you're you're going the extra mile to be carbon positive. Yeah, run me through that and, again, the whys and the wherefores and the how. Okay. So to slow climate change, uh, we've got to do a number of things. We've got to reduce what we put up uh, and we've got to remove what's already out there, so removals or or drawdown, natural drawdown. The best known form of natural drawdown at the moment that we can measure are trees. So on Lake Aware Station, uh, our outputs, what we put up there, is 2,500 tonnes of carbon equivalents per year, largely 70% of that's from our stock. Um, What we draw down through a bunch of trees, a lot of reforestation that's naturally luckily occurring, a lot of gullies and steep faces out the back, we're actually drawing in over 5,500 tonnes, so a little over twice what we met. So we're two times climate positive, um, which is giving us a great unique selling point for for marketing our, our, particularly our will offshore. So, yes, um, we've quantified that, we've had experts in, we've had companies like Carbon Crop uh, measure it through satellite AI, and we've had companies like um, Carbon Z, which is uh, Finn's company he founded, um, create a marketplace for that positive balance. So we, we as a farm now have an opportunity with that positive, positive balance. And we've, we've done two things. Yes, we have sold some of that positive balance as carbon credits um, on, on the ETS. It's, it's been a great earner. Uh, and so too have we done, we've done what we call an inset. So we've actually attached that positive balance to our wool. And so this year we've um, sold wool to Allbirds and with Allbirds we've created the world's first uh, net zero shoe using wool from Lake Aware Station. So they, they reduced their emissions in their manufacturing process, almost got it to zero, but they couldn't get it to zero. So they used our positive balance with our wool to get them to zero. So we've got to account for that, right? We can't double count it. So every time we sell wool that has a positive balance, we have to cross that off the ledger. Likewise, if we sell a carbon credit, we have to cross You need off the bigger ledger. brains than ours to work all the mathsy, yeah. mathsy part but of what this. I, but what I take from you, which is as you, far as you, and you, you know, it's obviously important you to say this because you're a business guy and you, in the end of the day you want to get a return on what you've done is as far as you are concerned with your station at least, you are able to turn, uh, turn the biodiversity work and the climate work into a really positive earner for you, at least. A hundred percent. And that, and that's, I guess, a message that we would like to share. That is possible for many sheep and beef farms in New Zealand. So sheep and beef farming in New Zealand make up 40%, almost half of our land mass. So we can actually make a, a material difference to our country's Paris commitments if a lot of those sheep and beef farmers take start accounting for what's going on there and their, their model, point one. And point two is rather than for a lot of us be threatened by climate change and see climate change as a potential cost in farming, what about if we see it as an opportunity and a revenue source? And and that's what we're trying to do. Like our, our carbon sales this year have, have been material. 
Uh, it's been a huge chunk of income, especially when meat prices are down this year. It's been a, a real saviour. And secondly, we're getting quite significant premiums over and above the commodity market because of what we're attaching to our wool. Gotcha. And look, I'm not here to get you to answer all of the questions about these sort of very, as you say, significant kind of science issues and questions and economics. But one comeback, maybe I'm talking about a different issue in a way because you're talking about this on a sheep and beef farm. But one thing I would say, looking at this from afar, is that's all good. I get the climate benefit, but I sit there and what does worry me is with um, carbon pricing and the ETS and so on. We're seeing these communities like in the lower North Island where you know more and more is going to forest and that sort of social cohesion of those communities is is uh, is is being lost in all of that. The jobs and the yeah. what what what's your sort of take on that? That worries me a lot. You know, and it worries um, the group Pure Advantage that we're involved in a lot as well. That that that, and you all know this better than anyone, Simon, that is a quirk of um, when um, Labor First got in and they partnered with um, New Zealand First, and New Zealand First said, okay, we'll partner with you guys, but you've got to do a couple of things. And one of them is you've got to allow foreign ownership of land if, uh, only if, not for farming, we can't have That's people right, come here for perverse, farming. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. but you, you can allow foreign ownership if they plant it in monoculture pines. Yes. So now monoculture pines are absolutely wrong for the same reason that monoculture pastures are wrong. And we've just seen the, the results of that in Tarafiri. Well-managed well forestry is fantastic. Forestry is a great earner and will continue to be a great earner and a great source of drawdown of carbon for this country. But this lock and leave monoculture pines, you're right, is destroying communities. It's setting us up for massive problems, massive environmental problems uh, in the future. And it's not what's right for Aotearoa. It's not an Aotearoa solution. To recloak Papatuanuku, we need an Aotearoa solution, and that is native forest. The, the ideal scenario, as I see it for New Zealand, is this mosaic of beautiful regenerative farmland producing high-quality, high-value food and fibre and native forest. That's what New Zealand should look like, and that's what will give us a, a more resilient Outlook, I think, as as we see more and more, and I'm only smiling here because I'm into it. Yeah. I'm, I'm concerned I'm going to have like you know listeners dropping off, and I pride myself on this because this is technical stuff. But I've got one more technical question for you on that because I think I took this from your book. I remember I was actually associate climate change minister for a few years. So once once upon a time, I knew a bit about this stuff. I mean, there are very technical rules in all of these areas, and so for example, you know what. What constitutes carbon capture and so on is, is is all set out. And I think I'm right. You would say, you know, we actually need that to be much more diverse, different kind of flora and fauna yeah. um, and, and, and native trees and the like. And that's sort of in a way what you were saying before. Have yeah. I got that right? Yeah, 100%. So at the moment, the, the carbon markets are pretty blunt and there is a ETS reform. I hope that continues to, to go through. So the only thing we're really looking at is is a monoculture pine because because it's easy to measure for a bureaucrat, right? We've got a ten year old pine tree, we've got so many stems per hectare, and we've got so many hectares. Easy, that's a formula I can understand. But um, when you've got um, mixed aged, uh, mixed types of trees, mixed growing rates, um, mixed coverage on a hill set, that's going to have someone scratching their head for a while. Yes. What it used to, thankfully, with a carbon crop using AI, we can actually now measure that. 
and it's not just trees. Soil is actually a bigger sequester worldwide than trees, and that's yes. not been counted. Regenerative agriculture sequesters carbon. Soil is a massive sequester that New Zealand yes. farmers should be rewarded for. So there should be future revenue in farming from soil carbon. It's happening in Australia. The first soil carbon credits were sold to Google by a big rancher in, in, um, in Australia. And... Carbon C again, my son's business is looking not only at soil carbon but seaweed carbon. We have forests, uh, forests around our shores, obviously. We've got, New Zealand's got massive uh, kelp forests. Uh, and also I mentioned production forestry. So wood in these walls is actually a, a sink and a permanent store of carbon. So there's more opportunities that we need to, to get in there. You know, some ultimate questions here, standing back from all this, you know, it's quite detailed stuff. Do farming and your environmental goals conflict? Um, and I suppose, let me be a bit mean, but, you know, you will have heard it before. You're sitting there, and I just feel like people are going to say, because it's the easy, maybe it's the cheap thing to say, you know, yeah, it's all right for you guys. You sold 42 below, you made a shitload of money, and you bought a fancy big farm, and you can afford to do that stuff. We, we've been doing this a long time. We're not going to sort of, you know, and, at our grassroots level, we can't kind of afford to do that. Yeah, I, I accept that response. Farming, as we said earlier, is super hard. The margins are super slim, slimmer than we kind of naively realised. Right. And if you look at this year particularly, you know, pretty much everything's down. Milk's down, meat's down. Uh, we're fortunate to be in farmwell, but strongwell's still down. I guess, and we have brought some money into it, but... You know, what I would say is we're trying stuff, stuff. Some's working, some's not. And we're happy to share both, you know. And for others who are interested, we're, we're happy to share. And we, we think, we think using Regen as an example, we actually think that's an example that doesn't cost more and, and can actually earn more. So happy and, to share that. And I guess, Simon... Um the thing about that that sort of um, and and let me use the word that's used for for some of our practices woke mm. Mm. and you know our response to that is is it woke to make money um, it, because if it is then yeah we're up for it we're woke yeah. um, is it woke to try stuff uh, okay we're, we're going to try stuff you know our son says um, and I guess every parent you know to have their child express pride in you means everything and our you know our son says well guys you could be wine and cheesing right now yeah um you know we're not simon we are passionate new zealanders Mm. um we love our country with all our hearts Mm. and we we've taken the harder road um to try and do something useful um certainly not selling vodka uh, (laughs) which probably served very little purpose um but um people need to have a bit of fun oh don't they? People are allowed a bit of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it feels for us like um, like there's an opportunity to make a difference. Um, and, you know, I feel like, you know, often people will say, well, you know, you've already had some success, like bringing that to the agricultural sector is a bad thing. And I don't see how it is. No, um, it's not. Totally. It's fantastic. And, and I thought the... I thought the best rationale for what you were doing, I mean, it's probably a lot of, but it's actually you are showing what is possible. 
Well, we're also having some catastrophic failures as well. But yeah, we, well, what, we yeah. are. What's possible yeah. and impossible. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, without me getting on another rant again, there's, there's, no, 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 there's 50,000 50, farmers in New Zealand. What, what a powerful force that would be if those 50,000 farmers were trying new stuff and, and sharing it with each other. And in the end, actually, they do want what you want, all of them, we all which want is higher value. Exactly. Right? And, yep. and you are showing a way to that. I suppose one thing, I, I didn't mean to ask you that quite this minute. I feel like I'm putting all the critiques to you. We're going to do something really positive in a second, I promise you. But, I mean, another, I suppose another one, just sort of question for you is, you know, the environmental piece in and the sustainability piece in the marketing of this abroad, there will be a market for that, and that's amazing. But, but is it also true that, you know, my sense is a lot of Asia, actually they're not quite there yet. Yeah. And so I suppose that what's the question and all that? Well, I suppose can we generalise? You're doing the right thing from the environment perspective, which is important. But but some of these other guys, the girls, they're sitting there and and they're serving a market that's not up for that yet. Yes, that, again, that's fair. Like if you look at China, I don't think the environment is a big part of their consumer agenda as yet. However, if you look at um, Scandinavia, I'd say is probably the marketplace that is the most sophisticated in climate change and, and demanding uh, brands that are, are decarbonising. Most of Western Europe is. Um, East and West Coast of um, the US, definitely. Um, so those markets tend to be at the kind of the, the top end of the pyramid. You know, like back in the, the vodka days, we would target cities like New York and London because they were influencing popular culture. That's where popular culture comes from. I think most brand choices now, your most forms of popular culture, are still coming from places like that. And if you look at places like that, they're absolutely concerned about climate change and making yes. brand choices. In time, I'm not sure how long, five years, ten years, that will move to other parts of the world for sure. There's been this debate for a million years, it seems. The same one we have for logs. You know, we've we've got marine, we've got wool. We can't seem to make high value out of it. Do you think you've found the recipe or do you? I, I don't think we've found the recipe. I think we've found some stuff that seems to be working. I, I think like in any sector, there needs to be a massive amount of people trying stuff. You know, some will work, some won't. You know, if you look at tech, for instance, there's more change going on in tech in a week than there is in farming in a year. And that's because there's a real hotbed of people trying stuff. Some's working, some's not. So I guess that's what we are pretty committed to. And we're lucky enough to travel, you know, from time to time. um, And we hear it straight from our customers. So Sheep Inc. have said it. um, Amazing brand in New York that we've just come from meeting with them. Another tomorrow, they say the same thing. So we know there's um, a real um, desire for... Uh, decarbonised, regenerative and animal welfare-oriented products from our our wee country. And then, you know, you talk to Damien O'Connor and he'll say trade's actually hard. It's harder than you think to sell New Zealand overseas. So why wouldn't um, we just... uh, use whatever we've got to try and build these relationships and and look to whatever the consumer trends are around the globe yeah. and then try and fulfil it. And, and you're right, Simon, it's exactly the same in timber. Why are we sending whole logs offshore? You know, mm. Why are we sending containers full of milk powder or you know whole, whole milk carcasses with no point of difference when we have these amazing point of differences here that can break that commodity cycle and, and earn much-needed premiums? And farmers get a really 
crappy deal as far as the margin tree goes. And we've got um, clients like Maggie Marilyn, for example, who um, is, uh, you know, one of New Zealand's great, you know, B Corp certified, extraordinary designers and, and, and one of our clients. And, you know, she herself will say it's she'll come to the farm and she'll see what we do all year and she'll go I don't understand why you get such a tiny piece mm. of why, why a farmer gets such a tiny piece of the margin tree and yet they're so busy on their farms or they've been blocked a little bit as I allude to in the book by the middleman to such an extent that they're not even asking that question mm. you know or, or they're not they don't have the time to advocate for themselves and a and a higher slice of that pie. You're real mavericks about some of this stuff, actually, when I think well, I mean, I, as I listen to you, I agree with you. But um but I, I feel like because what you're saying is, you know, the farmer actually needs to be out there with the consumer. But yes. at the moment they're not. But but you know, I suppose the other side of it, just to put put that would be, well, but the problem is, um, what those big co-ops do is they they do get a better price, don't they? Because they're able to kind of control the market and push that around internationally in a way that Jimmy and Jenny or even Jeff and Justine kind of can't quite. Well, they do do a lot, right? The big producer groups, the big meat companies, they they we, you need scale for processing that it helps smooth seasonality. You know, there's there's a lot of cost and infrastructure required to get um, a leg of lamb from Southland to uh, the shelf at Sainsbury's. Um, what they used to do 20 years ago, and we were part of it because we were in advertising, is they'd do a flash TV ad or some nice brochures, and that worked um, in, mar- in the marketing world 20 years ago. It doesn't work now. Brands aren't being build- built that way. Brands are being built by correct connecting the source to the consumer. And the great thing that we have in this world now, or great or bad, depending how you look at it, is is the internet and social media. So Jussie's built a you know, social media account, Instagram, for Lake Aware Station. We've got thousands of um, followers from people offshore. And so they, they want to know what we get up and do in the morning. They want to see Jack and his dogs. They want to see our, our sheep in a region pasture. They want to know why we're planting 20 seeds. They want to know why there's sunflowers in the paddock. They love those stories. And because they love those stories, they'll tell their friends about it. So let's say we've got 2,000, um, you're going to have to help me with the math here, 2,000 followers um, from our farm. If we had 50,000 farms in New Zealand with their Instagram account just Telling stories and farmers are great storytellers. New Zealanders are great storytellers. So if we did that, I think that's um, – what are we at? Um, might have to get the calculator out here. 2,000 times 50,000. So that's 100 million. So that's 100 yeah, million consumers loving stories from New Zealand and most amazing. importantly then being wanting to pay more for that legal land when they're in sense. Amazing. I've got – 49 more questions. We're running out of time. You've done Angus beef. I know you're into, you know, high-end tourism. People are coming and having a sustainable, you know, educative experience on your 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 station. Um, I, I feel like I should – I'm going to ask you one probe, probing, maybe slightly, not really, and then one, one, one more transformational. Um, I feel like I need to mention that um, show, the country calendar episode um, – I don't know if there was a lot of controversy. There was controversy. You've used the woke word um, because you had the mattresses and the sharing shed for your sheep, classical music, the white clean boards. I suppose my question's really this. How do you reflect on that now? 
We felt that it was a really difficult, ours was a difficult story to tell in the amount of time. Yeah. Um, and we felt that we did a pretty solid job of representing our own um, experiences on the farm um, at the time. What happens in the editing suite and what happens after the people leave the farm is not anything that we can control. Um, but it was it was a difficult story to tell in um, in in 20, 22 minutes, I reflect on it now and think um, the uh, of, of the incredible outpouring of support, Simon. So while there's um, a perception that it was difficult for us, um, you know, and, and there were um, an element of extremely distasteful um, uh, communications, but overall, we were overwhelmed with um, messages of support from industry leaders right throughout New Zealand. Um, politicians. Politicians, you know, and, and even uh, Wiramu Waratini, the head boy of Papakura High School where we grew up. Um, you know, it was just beautiful, the support that, um, that we got from the people who understood what the real message was, which was that we were there um, to try stuff at our own expense mm. and that we we weren't trying to tell anybody what to do, but more that we were just saying, hey, this is what we're doing. We're going to open source everything. You know, um, it, it's not easy. And we started the entire show with that. So we we sort of, um, I think I'm a better person when I think about some of the ugly discourse because I know that I would never want anyone else to be um, treated the way we were by mm. that small group of people and by some media. Mm. Um, it's made me, um, yeah, I, I mean, I have to admit to being um, concerned that the um, rural sector has that level of um, anger within it, but I also think that it said more about those people and where they're at than it did about us. How Air Station... Um now versus when you purchased it, I mean, give me a, a sense of the transformation that's happened there. Well, I'll you can speak to that in a minute, Jeff. But Jeff won't say this, and I will. Um, every uh, experienced and progressive farmer that witnesses the transformation is absolutely blown away by the vision of Jeff in terms of um, the front country and the um, management of it. Um, so I know, um, not because I would have any instinct for it, but because of what other people tell me that Jeff's done an incredible job of transforming Budlia, Bracken, Briar, um, and a, a really, you know, a very rundown farm into a really special and productive place. That's the only nice thing I'm saying about Jeff for the Amazing. rest of for the rest of this <laughs> podcast. I, I liked I liked in the book how you guys have quite a few little disagreements going on in the farm. It's brilliant. I just saw it. Well, again, it was reassuring for my marriage. But um, Jeff, um, look, I think you know from a distance the farm is still you know there's you got to learn with nature what you can kind of apply and what you can't. You know, it is still a high country station. It's uh, still responds to the seasons. It's still got some high steep country it's, and it's got some beautiful flat country. But yeah, look, we've done a, a lot of fencing, a lot of stock stock water. Um, we've fenced off seven kilometres of lakefront. We've planted over 23,000 native trees, not a pine, Simon. Um, and, and look, I think uh, it's certainly producing more. We've lifted stock units. Um, we've lifted stock units and improved our net 
carbon position. So we're producing more and and we're actually sequestering more carbon. So, And we live there. It's home. It feels like home now. We've had family weddings and we've had 21sts and we've had magical moments there. And um, although I do talk about in the book how there's um, at first a feeling of being an outsider and stepping into someone else's history. And I think one of my key learnings at this point, and I know Jeff feels the same way, is actually, you know what, we're now creating our own story and we're making our contribution to a little bit of history down there. Absolutely. Look, a couple of quick fires for, for one each uh, for you. Justine, you've written a couple of books about 42 Below and also, of course, about the high country station life. Um, you, you obviously enjoy writing. Look, I, I think you've great. One thing that impressed me is you've got a, because I can tell, because I've written, they don't change these things too much. Um, you've got a great vocabulary. Um, and But the question is, um, is there a next, another one? Have you got book three on the go? or I have got I book knew three you on would. Once you've got two, you've got a third one. In there. <laughs> um, any sneak kind of, don't tell us if it jinxes you, but it's a vague subject matter or? Um, yes. In fact, I'd, I'd actually almost finished this one before uh, Meet You at the Main Divide. Right. And it's about um, my experiences hiking with the same five girls every year Fantastic. for many years. It's it's Girls Go Wild on the Root Burn. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we look forward it's to it. Got that. some very naughty stories. <laughs> well, okay. That sounds like a good extract to get into the newspaper at stuff.co.nz. And Jeff, um, you, you don't want, you haven't wanted your, your legacy to be vodka. What's it going to be? Um, I think a positive contribution to farming in New Zealand, ideally. Yeah, to earn more for. New Zealand, you know, our primary produce needs to earn more. Fantastic. I want to wrap up with some questions we ask every guest. We call this section general knowledge. Why don't we go one for one, but I'll let you decide who goes first or, you know, how that works. If you could be somebody else for a day, who would it be? Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Fair enough. That's uh, You've seen him live? Yes. Oh, so many times. Is that right? I actually have never seen I've, I've been to a lot of concerts. I just, I've, I've not seen him. So, um, but he's been here a couple of times, hasn't he? Amazing. Jeff, then, this is a harder question. What's your most embarrassing moment? Uh, there are many, actually. I'll, I'll use a farm one. Okay. Uh, getting getting the tractor stuck, breaking something on the tractor, you know, having to call up Jack, our farm manager, like um, like you mentioned, um, uh, what's uh, Diddley Squat Farm, Jeremy's Farm. Calling up Jack, saying, "How do I get these bloody this bloody hydraulic grab off the tractor um, for about the third time?" Uh, and I th- and um, that was rather embarrassing. Oh, felling a tree onto our. I, uh, um, I tried to new... fall a very large pine tree uh, one way into the paddock, and it went exactly the opposite way and uh, hit a new gate. Love it. Uh, I can identify with that. If if money was no object, what would be the first three things you'd buy? Maybe. Tree, a tree, and a tree. Fantastic. Well, you've done a you've done a bit of that, so you've you've lived a good life on that basis. Um, Jeff, which famous actor would play you in the movie of your life? Uh, <laughs> look, I'm embarrassed to say this, but you know, in those kind of um, Vin Diesel, darling. Oh, Vin Diesel. <laughs> uh, no, no, I see no, that. Someone. Well, that, that's it's actually see the superficial. That's actually more complimentary than what I was going to say, which is Malcolm uh, Malcolm Malkovich. 
Um, oh, John Malkovich. John Malkovich, yeah. yes. Yeah, John Malkovich. <laughs> yeah, I sort of see yeah. that. No. I, I think, though, you're, um, Just, I mean, I don't want to, I, I think you're better looking than him. What's the strangest tradition in your family? It's not strange, but it is a cool one, and I think it's going to become tricky in time, is that um, we put our foot down and make the boys come into the bush with us for um, at least two to three days right before Christmas, which is a massive buzzkill for them because we're, like, ripping them out of their peer group and you know, and, and heading out into the bush. Um, bush. And you, you'll see a couple of photos of those trips in the book. And, um, yeah, I think that um, it, it's really, it's an important tradition now and we have to hold firm to it. But there's girlfriends on the scene now that yeah. we're going to have to bring along. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yes, it, it probably does depend a bit on the old girlfriend, doesn't it? Yeah. But um, anyhow, <laughs> um, if you could, you could both answer this, stop. If you could, eat, if you could choose to stop ageing at any age, which would you choose? 35. <laughs> Right. 28. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, that's, yeah, I think they're very honest answers, actually. Hey, well, it's just been great having you on. Thanks so much, uh, Jeff and Justine, for coming on Generally Famous. Our pleasure. You've been listening to Generally Famous, a stuff podcast. There's a new episode every Wednesday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash generally famous or wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, if you follow us on Apple or Spotify, any of the podcast apps, you'll get the latest episode automatically. Sounds good, right? Thanks to my producers, Chris Reed and Jen Black, and audio editor, John Ropiha. I'm Simon Bridges. I really appreciate you listening. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. No, that, I think Chris, it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. That's Nothing iffy in there. On. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts.